From InsureTech Ireland, this is InsureTech Radio, episode 25. I'm Connor Sweetman. Hello, I'm Connor Sweetman, and welcome to InsureTech Radio, the podcast that teaches you about how technology is transforming insurance and about the people making it happen. And so, all um, way of describing this, therefore, that we no longer have uh, barbarians at the gate, but um, possibly Samaritans in the sense that they are now here to help the industry, to collaborate is the word that you hear a lot. But my final thought on this was that actually, you know what, you, you might be using one of these businesses as the Trojan horse for them getting a bit of, bit of a runway to then developing their proposition and becoming competitors to you again, again in the future. This week, my guest is Chris Sandilands of Oxbow Partners. He speaks to me about Oxbow's InsureTech Impact 25 report, why the state of European insurers is in flux, and about why most insurance executives won't bet their career on the latest technology. Please enjoy. Chris, you're very welcome to InsureTech Radio. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you very much for the return invitation. My pleasure. My pleasure. Great to have you. Um, You're report InsureTech Impact came came out um, was just last week and like last year it intrigued me um, and the, the opening um, few paragraphs really really intrigued me so you talk about the economic standing of European insurers being in flux and I have to say when I read that I didn't really understand it so I thought what a perfect place to start. <laughs> what do you mean by that statement exactly? Good. Well, thank you for that opening because it's always a great endorsement of anything that one has written when uh, the first question is, I didn't understand it, so tell me what you meant. (laughs) So to answer your question, I'm just going to take a step back from the question and maybe just talk about the overall theme of um, the first section of our report. And, And what we're really saying is that over the last 10 years, um, insurance has, has obviously evolved and the hypothesis or the thesis in our report is that in the 2020s, um, the drivers of value for the insurance industry in, in the world and our focus is Europe is going to be the ability to digitize. And so um, that presumably, if, if that hypothesis is true, means that some people will, will win and some people will lose. And so what we were just trying to set up at the beginning of the report is that Actually, there is a track record, if you like, of the insurance industry um, changing. So despite the fact that, you know, there are not that many sort of big seismic shocks that anyone can identify in the 2010s, um, it is true that um, the market cap of the European top 15 insurers has changed. So people like um, Allianz uh, and broadly the the European uh, sort of leaders have gained market share. And then there's been a whole load of um, smaller carriers, some of the European bank assurance focus carriers that have uh, that have lost market share, for example. And and so, whilst it is true that insurance is a broadly stable um, industry, uh, it is possible to win and lose over longish time horizons. And so our argument is that it's therefore very important for uh, the large carriers to be thinking about their digital agenda, as we call it. Um, so that they emerge as the winners in 2030. So when we rerun the analysis in 2030, assuming the uh, InsureTech Impact 25 survives, hmm. um, 
we think it's true that the those people will, who will have gained market share um, in the industry will be those who have managed to move with the digital um, trends of the time. And the question that uh, strung, uh, sprung to my mind as I was reading the report um, was that, you know, the release of the report kind of coincides with um, the release of a lot of uh, annual results from all the publicly traded insurers. Uh, you know, we're recording this on the 28th of February. So some have announced results already, some are still to come. Um, and it made me think about, you know, as an investor, say, if I was to invest in these companies now, um, would they still be around in 10 years or to what size would they be around? Or, you know, would I get a return? You know, so if it was my own money, like what are the characteristics of a company uh, of an insurance company that will be around say in yeah. 10 years and drive kind of decent amount of value uh, what, what would your thoughts be on that like i'm not asking obviously for investment advice but just like what are the characteristics of companies who you think would um uh, really drive kind of shareholder value over uh, 10 years yeah so i mean broadly speaking i think it's true that um, most of today's insurers will be around in 10 years' time. Mm. And um, obviously, there'll be one or two sort of seismic shops, probably, you know, takeovers or whatever it might be. Um, but broadly speaking, I think insurers um, will survive. And one of our arguments in all of our insurtech um, analysis over the last four or so years has been um, that we don't think there's going to be the so-called Uber moment in insurance. We think um, there are some structural reasons why startups aren't going to, you know, displace Allianz in a rush. Um, but on the other hand, as we say in the report, um, you know, the 2020s are going to be much bigger than InsurTech, but InsurTech could play a big role in shaping the 2020s. And so to answer your question, I think the sort of characteristics of the winners in the 2020s is going to be, you know, their ability um, to use digital technology more effectively than competitors now given that what we're talking about here is share of market cap rather than you know um, binary outcomes this you don't need to be uh, perfect in any of these things but if you as an insurer are better than your competition at for example um, implementing new policy admin systems in order to service business more effectively than your competitors and if you're able to uh, integrate with distribution businesses uh, more quickly um, and profitably than your competitors, then um, I think uh, you have some of the characteristics which will be relevant in the 2020s uh, to, to, to sort of win the decade. Obviously, um, a whole load of traditional success factors are also going to be true. So cost control, um, capital management, all of these things. but. But if you believe it's true that, for example, customer demand uh, requirement for self-service, et cetera, et cetera, is going to be important, then I think, um, like I say, your ability to, to engage with digital trends uh, quicker than the competition is going to be critical. And one thing as well, I was wondering, when you, like, you focus clearly on European uh, insurers in, in the report, but, but obviously, you know, the we still have the the American insurers, like the big behemoths like Berkshire Hathaway, AIG, et cetera. Like, were there any trends that you noticed in America that are different to Europe? Or And then also, just, I was just interested in your choice to just focus on Europe as opposed to uh, um, US, Asia, et cetera. Yeah. 
I mean, the, to, to answer the second half of your question, which is the easier half, um, <laughs> that's because we're based in Europe and it's our focus. Um, we uh, we have included a couple of non-European insurtechs in our report. So um, someone like uh, Investshore is based in South Africa um, and Energetic Insurance is based in the US. And so, you know, we, we, have, a, we have a global perspective, I suppose, for insurtech, um, but a bias for the implications of insurtech because that's where we operate. Um, your question about the comparison between the uh, different continents. I guess one of the interesting things about America, in my um, slightly more limited perspective, is that um, in many ways, in fact, in indisputed ways, America is the um, technology capital uh, of the world. Um, you know, uh, San Francisco, etc., um, is where you are if you are a uh, up and coming, uh, more likely than not. Um, but on the other hand, insurance in America. Is is an extremely uh, clunky uh, business, partly driven by state regulation, um, partly driven by um, a distribution model that just hasn't really uh, been disrupted um, to any significant degree, um, certainly outside um, motor insurance. And mm. so um, it's it's interesting to see that on the one hand, you've got companies like um, Lemonade, who are just trying to bring the US more or less up to date um, with, say, the UK and to some extent Germany in terms of direct acquisitions. Um, but on the other hand, you look at um, what many uh, technology companies are doing in the US, and it's pretty um, rudimentary stuff like um, moving claims payments away from being checks, uh, which you send in the post, to being electronic fund transfer. Um, so it is very interesting in the US how broad. Um, the range of requirements are from technology, starting from, like I say, very basic to very sophisticated. Um, whereas I would say in Europe, um, many of those basics, like claims payments, um, have already been been solved. Okay, fair enough. Um, and you talk about, you mentioned Lemonade there, and in, in the report, you described them maybe a couple of years ago as uh, as the barbarians at the gates. Uh, you know that was kind of the rhetoric. Rhetoric it was a very kind of aggressive, kind of out yeah. with the old, in with the new kind of um, marketing message. And you describe you know these types of insurtechs, the barbarians, the Samaritans, and, Tro- and the Trojans. Can you maybe just give an overview of what you mean by that, and maybe we can go into each of them in a little bit more detail. Yeah, sure. So our, our general point was um, what I slightly alluded to earlier, which is that we don't believe that insurance is going to be turned on its head by an aggressive technology-led entrant, um, like arguably retail has been with Amazon or mobility through Uber, uh, Lyft, etc. So um, I, I think what we're trying to describe here is this evolution in the models of insurtex, where two or three or four years ago, um, they all turned up in the industry and they were generally distribution um, or personal lines distribution businesses. And the founder uh, would stand up at conferences and say, oh, I just renewed my home insurance and it was awful for the following 25 reasons. Uh, and therefore, I have founded this uh, business, which is now going to sell insurance in a much better way. And by the way, we're also going to pay claims of three things. All of it. Sounds a bit and, like your annual uh, motorbike renewal. <laughs> exactly. The antithesis thereof. And... Um, <laughs> And and to be completely you know blunt about it, I would say most of those businesses have failed or are in the process of um, 
you know, or are not growing as fast as the founders would have liked because of a variety of factors, but, you know, largely insurance acquisition costs are very high, customer inertia is very high, um, and you get one um, crack every year to to get someone to switch. And if they decide not to, for whatever reason, then you've got to wait a whole new year to, to get them to sign up. And I think it's interesting that over the last uh, sort of 12 or so months, uh, a lot of those businesses have stopped uh, being quite so uh, um, hostile, if you like, in, in their rhetoric against the industry. So, you know, they're no longer talking about fixing broken propositions and things like that. Um, and uh, have done um, various things. And some of them have become um, sort of have remained in the distribution space, but they are positioning themselves much more as partners to the industry. So, um, you know, we will help you reach segments which you can't normally reach. We will have a very tailored proposition um, because as a large insurer, you can't afford to, you know, be investing this amount of resource in, in one particular customer segment. Or they've fully moved away from distribution and now are selling, for example, their systems to carriers, um, which is what someone like um, Trove did in the last 12 months. And so our um, way of describing this is that we no longer have uh, barbarians at the gate, but um, possibly Samaritans in the sense that they are now here to help the industry, to collaborate is the word that you hear a lot. Um, but our sort of um, final thought on this was that actually, you know what, you you might be using one of these businesses as a, um, a form of support for your core business. Actually, is this really just a Trojan horse for them getting a bit of uh, revenue, a bit of a runway to then developing their proposition and uh, and becoming um, competitors to you again again in the future. So, you know, using the partnership uh, for as long as they need it so that they can prove out their model and then suddenly decide to become direct um, distributors again or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, like uh, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking fair enough you know this is business you know it's not a it's um if they did des- decide to uh move on and become a competitor i would think yeah that's that's fine um but what are there, are you noticing any kind of suspicions among incumbents or so-called partners that this might actually happen or is this just kind of an assumption that you're saying is a scenario that could play out well i think there's evidence that it's already happening so um there's a business um, called Zigo, which we covered in our 2018 InsurTech Impact 25. And they have now set up a, a carrier in Gibraltar. And uh, what they want to do is start to underwrite their own product. Um, equally, um, we covered a business this year called um, Dant uh, Sundhed Sikring. And um, they will have to forgive my pronunciation of their name. But they are a Danish um, health insurance MGA. And they are also currently in the process of waiting for their Danish um, carrier license. Um, both of those two businesses have um, capacity agreements with um, industry incumbents. And really, if they're finding their own carrier, um, they will be moving at least um, you know, a portion of their future volume into an entity that they control. So I don't think this is a... Um, this is not an unsubstantiated hypothesis, but something for which you can point to specific um, trends already in the market. And is there any way 
incumbents can well, protect themselves because you, like obviously there's there's usually a very long uh, procurement cycle uh, for when you're dealing with or any large organization um and is, is there any way that the incumbents can protect themselves whether in contract or some other method uh that uh, th- this won't have as much of a material impact on them yeah I, I mean i don't think you can necessarily protect yourself against it because mm. um you know it's a uh, free market and people can um you know there's only so many things you can do right i mean you can agree a non-compete or something but uh, no entrepreneur is going to sign up to a you know 20 year um you know sole carrier deal um so you know, legally, there's probably only so much that you can I guess um, the point is for carriers just to be smart about who they're doing partnerships with. So um, do you really want to be doing early stage partnerships um, with insurers who have, for the sake of argument, less than a million um, euros uh, of GWP um, without having some clear idea in your mind about how you're going to remain their partner when they're 5, 10, 15, 20? Um, and I think that's just a question of being really clear um, about why you're doing these things in the first place, what you're offering that other people don't offer, and what is that level of commitment that you can provide to the insurtech, which means that it's actually not worth their while going out to raise money, which they use as risk capital, um, which you know is probably not most investors' first um, choice of um you know the use of capital that they put into an insure tech so so how do i retain these people as my clients um without sort of over investing that i don't make any money along the lifetime of the relationship hmm. and do you think is there any danger of the opposite of maybe uh, um some of the startups um ip being um borrowed so shall we say <laughs> Um, I'm sure there is, and I, you know, every time we talk to a corporate um, about sort of an insurtech, one of the things that they either say explicitly or you can sort of see whirring in the background is this question. Obviously, you know, I'd like to meet them because I'd like to see what they've got, and then I'm going to make a decision as to whether I'm going to build it myself or just um, do a partnership with them. So, um, but again, you know, I, I'm not sure that's a particularly um, unusual characteristic of insurance and insurtech. It's probably uh, you know, pretty much true in any commercial relationship um, that, you know, you're, everyone is trying to figure out what the most efficient way to do things is. So, you know, um, we don't make our own pencils because the pencil manufacturer makes it easy and cheap enough for us to buy pencils off them. So um, it, it's, you know, it's a little bit like that, but it, it, equally it, it's it's the reason why insurtechs need to make sure that they've actually got IP um, because if you, if you don't, then you know someone probably can copy what you've got, and and why not? Mm, absolutely, yeah. And another point you made in the report I found very interesting, just uh, when it comes to kind of startups and their uh, place in the world, um, it was that you mentioned that some startups are developing technology that is just too sophisticated for today's market. Could you elaborate yeah. a little bit more on that? This is actually a really interesting point to be writing um, because. Um, I don't know if you saw, but we had an advisory board uh, this yeah. year, which comprised nine um, very senior um, people from different parts of the insurance industry. And um, so together with them, we were um, you know, working through what we thought the, the storyline was for this year. 
And this was the point which absolutely got the most um, contention, ranging from, you know, this is absolutely not correct, all the way through to, yeah, this is absolutely correct. I don't understand why no one's talking about this. Um, so this is <laughs> this is probably um, our most um, contentious uh, point in the whole report. But but what we what we sort of find interesting is that you see a lot of insurtechs who are running around saying, you know, we have this absolutely like super whizzy um, uh, proposition to do, for example, micro forecasting of weather. So I can tell you that you know it's going to rain two inches in London, um, you know, tomorrow, but it's only going to rain one and a half inches in, um, you know, on the outskirts of London or whatever it is. And, and that is like super clever. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, if you happen to be a umbrella salesperson or something like that, then that is probably incredibly useful to know. But the question really is, is if you're an insurer, what are you going to do with that? Um, how, you know, does, does, what is the, the thing that you can build into your proposition or your risk management that um, that benefits from knowing that. And, and the example we put in the report was actually a different one, which was um, looking at the level uh, of um, or how, how full oil tanks are in different ports. So this is something that hedge funds already buy off clever satellite imaging companies. They figure out where there's lots of oil and where there's not so much oil, and then they start sort of trading, um, I don't know, shipping or whatever to, to arbitrage um, these uh, these insights. But insurance is like this binary world where you either say, right, I'm going to write the business or I'm not going to write the business. And then, you know, with a few uh, simplifications, you'll, you basically hold that risk for a year. And hmm. I think really it's just um, data is obviously absolutely critical for the insurance industry. And if you go and look at I don't know, any UK personal lines insurer or whatever, they will tell you that, data and pricing is um, the number one uh, strategic asset. Um, but on the other hand, um, you, um, you know, there are types of analysis which is, in our view, not that helpful for the industry right now. So, so what we need, to, or what an insurtech needs to ensure is that they are um, providing insights which an insurer can actually use and trade um, rather, than, <coughs> rather than something that is super clever but actually um doesn't really lend itself to being integrated into an insurance proposition yeah that makes a lot of sense um so look like not only is is that maybe an existential threat for some um startups there's also will you talk about um the need for innovation and that being uh, an exit uh, existentially important for some insurers and not others i was just wondering if you could move on to to that and the the different attitudes of incumbents around innovation. Uh, so you you listed down three points. There's the, there's the crowds, the guys who like it's existentially important. It's there's strategic importance, and then there's tactical importance. Can you distinguish between those three? Yeah, sure. So um, what we were thinking about there was what's the what's the difference in attitude between the to both important, but actually more broadly to um, innovation and sort of stuff outside of the core. And um, we sort of came up with these three categories, and it was um, a couple of years ago. Now I still think it's it's true. In fact, the way we categorised it. So the you you've got a bunch of players who we call existentially interested in um, in the future, uh, and 
is someone like AXA or Allianz sits in that category. So AXA have AXA Next. Um, it's basically a huge innovation team that they are building up. Um, they have said that they're going to invest, a, um, I think it's 100 million um, uh, euros a year into AXA Next. Uh, sorry, 200 million euros a year into AXA Next. And, um, you know, they are um, really trying to reinvent uh, insurance. So their tagline is they want to move from payer to partner, much less transactional, know their customers better, be there before the claim, um, figure out what happens when I no longer own a car, but just have my uh, pale uh, self-driving pod that turns up and takes me to the airport or whatever it is. Um, and and so, you know, there are some seriously big because they just believe that if they don't get on the front foot for these trends, uh, they are going to be, um, you know, overtaken in the future. Um, and the sort of trends that we talk about there are the, you know, the ones we described in the first section of the report, like, for example, the fact um, that you now have, uh, I don't know, cloud computing companies who have literally millions of customers globally. Um, what happens if these people will start to um, sell ancillary services? Cyber insurance might be the most obvious example. Um, if you have not understood how AWS works, um, if you don't have relationships at the global level with these people, um, if you don't understand how to embed insurance into third-party propositions, um, you know, I think it is true that there is a chance that um, you know you do end up um, shrinking your share of 2030 um, market share. Uh, sorry, a market cap. Um, so that's the that's the first category. And then uh, what we also see is a whole load of players who just frankly don't have the resources um, of the globals and have decided that you know they need to um, evolve their business, but they're not necessarily, um, like I say, going to um, uh, you know uh, throw everything at it. We call these strategic innovators. And so what they're doing is they're looking at their um, current business model and they're thinking, where can they do something that's um, fundamentally better? So an example here is something like Direct Line in the UK. Mm. Um, they are obviously a large motor insurer. Um, they distribute both direct and through aggregators. And in 2019, they launched a new brand called Darwin. Um, and this is interesting in as much as it um, is an entirely new tech stack with a new team, with a new approach to pricing. Um, as we understand it, um, it sells mostly to new customers. It doesn't cannibalize their existing business. Um, and so, you know, this is obviously a big investment. It's, it's innovation, uh, but it's not it's not changing insurance. So um, so there's a that, that's a category which I would expect most regional or local players to be sitting in um, who who can't just afford to invest money um, on the 10-year horizon, but maybe the the three to five year horizon. And when we come back to say insurers who who kind of look at insurtech and innovation as being tactically important. So yeah. um they might disagree that innovation is like the be all and end all. And I just wonder what is their point of view? What are what are the arguments that they make? Sorry, the people who are anti innovation. <laughs> Yeah, well, you say that yeah. it makes it sound really bad, but I assume that there there are smart people who work in these uh, businesses who make these the, yeah, these decisions. Um, so I just wonder what 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 is their point of view? There are arguments against it, um, and the main argument really is that I don't think anyone has really proven the innovation business case. Right, so mm. um, 
Chris Reed did some interesting analysis in one of their Sigma papers about um, six months ago, which is the uh, relationship between insurers who spend a lot of time innovating um, and uh, share price performance. And they found that there was really no correlation whatsoever between those two. Things. So, um, you know. Over what period it, of time was that? Uh, oh, I can't remember. Um, maybe two, three years? I can't remember. Some, something like that. It's, okay. um, so not that long, really. No, no, exactly. But, but you know, what they were specifically looking at was um, uh, active investment in, in short techs. You know, the, the the simple truth is that there is not a huge amount of evidence which says that you must innovate, otherwise you die. Um, lots of people who will tell you that's true, but, um, you know, uh, you have to have a certain leap of faith um, to believe them. Um, now, uh, equally, you know, it's not completely obvious that innovation and any kind of increase in GWP or profit is um, connected, although it all comes down to a definition of innovation. So clearly, some people write cyber insurance, and cyber insurance didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, if you count um, the creation of a new insurance product uh, for a new risk as innovation, then, you know, then may maybe you know, that's, uh, you know, maybe you do believe in innovation, but, it, it, but you know, if you were talking about digital innovation and new propositions, which are no longer, you know, insurance model and things like that, um, again, there's, there's not a huge amount of um, evidence. Um, we, when we talk to carriers, um, you know, we think the two main reasons for innovating at the moment is to learn and um, to create a culture of um, active um, business development. Um, I think those two things, you know, again, you can't prove, but those seem like very reasonable and sensible reasons um, to uh, to spend some time trying to figure out what the future looks like. Um, and it is my belief, uh, but I cannot prove it, that if you're good at those two things, um, that you will find some form of value uplift in the uh, in the medium term. But like I say, it's too early for anyone to really point at anything significant. And say, you know, because I did some sort of serious innovation, um, I am now the Amazon of insurance or whatever. Yeah, and more than likely, if we're, you know, 10 years from now, looking back, the quote unquote Amazon and insurance may not even yeah. exist now. It may be a completely yeah, new brand think, we never heard of. Well, yeah, it, it could be that. It could be that actually insurance is such a uh, boring product, product that, you know, no one, even if there was an Amazon for an insurance, uh, that no one cared because they just renewed with their existing carrier. I think that's <laughs> just as likely a scenario. I mean, it's a slightly depressing scenario. Right? Um, and, but it, you know, it is true that, um, I don't know, lemonade might struggle because it's just so expensive to acquire customers and actually in reality no one cares. And that's not an argument against innovation or investment, by the way, because you know, Allianz still needs to sell more policies than AXA and, you know, they need to sell more policies than Generali. I mean, maybe it's Friday afternoon and I'm tired and I'm sort of uh, feeling glass half empty, but, you know, innovation and insurance might be a case of being the best of a bad bunch rather than being this fabulous thing called Amazon where, you know, you can order a toothbrush in the morning and it'll arrive in the evening. Cool. Well, look, uh, let, let's move on to uh, the list itself and hopefully we can t uh, uh, re-inject a little bit of uh, positivity into the conversation. Yeah, sorry, so yeah. like what companies in this new cohort, which ones excited you the most or which types of technology or trends excited you the most? So, 
Um, there's an interesting feature, I suppose, of this year's list, which is that um, we've got lots more um, customer-facing propositions again. In the last um, year, we had loads more B2B businesses, what we call supplier and short techs. Um, and that pendulum seems to have swung back. So I think at least um, 10 or 12 or something of our businesses are um, are some sort of a proposition. Um, in terms of who is exciting, um, there's a few um, which maybe stand out for me. So um, we've got one, in fact, I've mentioned it already, uh, Dansk uh, Sundhed Sikring, uh, which is a business that was founded, um, I think, about um, eight or so years ago. I can't remember exactly now, um, as a health insurer in Denmark. And they are now the largest um, distributor of health insurance in that market. Um, not only that, they uh, have um, the lowest loss ratio and the highest NPS of any of their competitors. And uh, this is super interesting because one of the approaches they took um, was that if you're a health insurer, um, the sort of the classic and established way to do things is to say to the customer, hey, you know, you've got a slightly sniffly nose, so you know, go and sort yourself out and send us the bill afterwards. Um, now, the consequence of that is that if you happen to live in Germany or something, um, you know that your policy covers 10 massages a year for back pain, um, but if you're feeling bored at work one day, uh, you can very happily uh, go to the doctor, tell them that you've got back pain, and uh, get yourself prescribed 10 free massages. Um, and that obviously does not do wonders for your uh, loss ratio. And so what, what these guys do is they use a completely data-driven approach to, um, to, to the claims process. Um, they uh, find out what you've got, and then they use their data and insight to tell you how to get better. And they will then uh, work out what your treatment plan is and uh, not let you take advantage of, uh, of the system. Um, and so, you know, by doing that, like I say, what they have managed to achieve, which is obviously the insurer holy grail, um, is a really low loss ratio and a really high NPS, which is uh, which is very interesting. Uh, then um, a couple of other ones which are interesting are, for example, um, what else we got? Energetic insurance, uh, uh, sort of an interesting one as well. And they, they speak to this trend of... Um, insurtechs doing very specific things um, which carriers would not have the resources um, to do themselves. So um, these guys are a green energy um, insurance business. And what they're insuring is the future cash flows from the project that you want to set up. Um, it's a bit complicated and I can't quite remember how it works. If you're a large um, uh, um, developer of wind farms, uh, then you have a high credit rating and so you can um, get loads of finance on the back of your future cash flows because uh, you're a known entity to the bank. Um, if you're a shopping center or something and you want to just set up one or two turbines, um, then uh, you might not have that security. So you can't securitize your, your future cash flows to finance the project. So um, energetic insurance come along and they, um, they basically help you out by guaranteeing that cash flow to allow you to then finance the project. Um, super geeky. Super narrow, uh, really interesting because it's just a great way of um, providing people something that they need, um, and for insurers to get access to a um, effectively a premium pool, uh, which they would not otherwise um, be able to uh, to exploit themselves. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, um, give us one more, and then and then we'll um, we'll wrap it up. Good. So um, 
who should I choose last? Uh, there's a couple of um, parametric businesses in there, which I think are interesting. But, oh, yeah. um, uh, so there's one called Descartes, uh, French business, um, and they're just building bespoke parametric products for large corporates, which I think is interesting. So I think generally um, hyper, um, um, parametric products are, uh, are sort of on the up. Um, we've got a couple of cyber businesses in there, Cyber Cuban Cover. Um, there's so many covers, so I should probably spell it C-O-V-R-R. Um, both interesting, uh, both getting by insurers because, again, the cyber is interesting because, uh, you know, insurance companies aren't necessarily experts at building um, cyber insurance risk assessment models, uh, very mm -hmm. different to working out whether a building is going to burn down or not. Um, yeah. So they're reaching for these uh, third party providers to uh, allow them to understand um, uh, what the risk is of these um, businesses they're writing. Uh, and then, you know, just to pick out one or two others, uh, we've got something called Prenetics, which is genetic testing, uh, which could obviously have a massive impact on health insurance. Um, and uh, and then we've got some some distribution players uh, that are just reaching segments in ways that others don't. So something like GetSafe, um, Beesurance, um, maybe to finish on those guys. So Beesurance have embedded uh, dental insurance into a a tooth, uh, toothbrush, an electric toothbrush, IoT toothbrush. Um, wow. So, uh, you know, uh, pretty random, uh, quite fun. Um, you know, I'm sure it's not going to be the product that makes them, makes them rich, uh, but it's certainly a product which they can test out um, building innovative new new covers um, in embedded propositions. Absolutely. And yeah, it's also kind of a, a fun product in a way, you know, everyone can kind of imagine how it would work and it's very kind of, you know, um, yeah. what's the word? Um, kinesthetic is the word that came to my head, you know, just kind of easy yeah. to kind of imagine, touch and feel, you know? Yeah. Although uh, they have an advert on LinkedIn, which uh, is a family all brushing their teeth together. And <laughs> the marketer's dream. But my family does not have as much fun whilst brushing their teeth. <laughs> um, so where can people download the report and check it out? Our report can be downloaded on our website, uh, which is oxbopartners.com forward slash impact 25. Um, or it can be obviously reached uh, from the homepage. Um, and if uh, if there's anyone out there who wants to be considered for the report next year, then we'd love to hear from them. Equally, uh, we always love hearing from carriers who are um, looking at uh, their operations um, and whether that includes an insurtech angle or not. Um, and uh, and think that some of the themes that we're raising in the report are um, useful and relevant to them. Great. Well, Chris, thank you very much for coming on InsureTech Radio. Good. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be back. Thank you for listening to InsureTech Radio. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Speak to you next time.